Welcome to the future of education. And now, here's your host, Michael Horn. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the future of education. I'm Michael Horn, and do we have a conversation for you today? Open Classrooms is, in my mind at least, one of the few education companies that has clearly positioned itself as a disruptive innovation in the market. It's a French-based company, and it offers everything from free to degree-based online courses and job areas, really direct to students to help them advance in their lives, but also a range of programs that they offer directly to employers themselves to help them with all of their education and upskilling needs. All of these programs are also low cost. In many cases, they're also, as I said up front, free. And they also have a healthy dosage of good instructional design to boot in them. This isn't just stuff that's been created by faculty who perhaps don't know the latest research behind teaching and learning. They have done a really good job of being thoughtful about the education side of this and the business model side of it. Its CEO and co-founder, uh, Pierre Dubuc, has been at this since he was, I believe, a university student some 15 years ago or so. Uh, and today he joins us on the future of education. Pierre, welcome. It's been a while, I think, since we were last in person together, walking and talking on the streets of New York City. Holy, hi, Michael. I would love to do that again. <laughs> it's been it's been a while indeed. And it was a very good introduction. Thanks for explaining, you know, what uh, Open Classrooms is about. It's about 15 years. I started this business with my co-founder Mathieu when we were in school creating free courses to have some friends learn coding. So this is how we got started. You got started with the coding, but like in your words, how do you describe what Open Classrooms is now? Take away the uh, Michael Horn version of it. Like when you meet someone else on the streets of New York City, what do you say you do uh, and, and you've created? I have to say it was a really good version though. So I, I, I would definitely reuse that. Um, but what I say is, first of all, that Open Classrooms is what we call a, a mission-driven company. Um, it's a B Corp organization, um, and the mission of Open Classrooms is to make education accessible, and especially education leading to jobs. Um, so the social impact that we're tracking and reporting on is the number of what we call career outcomes, uh, otherwise known as job placement, basically. It's like the number of students we place in the workforce, either for a first job, for a new job, switching careers, getting promoted, uh, creating your own business. Um, but it's a, a really significant career impact. This is what we're trying to build. And it can be in the form of a free, a free course. It can be in a form of a degree program, much longer, an apprenticeship, upskilling, reskilling. So it can take various forms at different ages, um, but overall the outcome would be a career impact. It's interesting, you, Guild Education, a few other companies like you all are basically redefining what is the measurement of success. It's not just completing a degree program, it's not just learning a few concepts, it's really being able to use that and get ahead in the career marketplace. I, I just give us a sense of the scope of size and success you've had when you look at it how many learners you serve and how many placements are you having into careers? Yeah, totally. So this year we will probably place between 40 to 50,000 students in the workforce. Uh, last year it was about 15,000. The year before it was 4,000. So it gives you kind of a sense of also our growth. 
uh, trajectory at open classrooms, um, then the way we do it um, can be through free courses or certificate programs or degree programs or apprenticeship programs. Um, and we are, uh, you might have said it, you, we are a non-traditional college ourselves, which is kind of a unique positioning um, because we do have our own uh, degree awarding powers in Europe. Um, so we have our own faculty or uh, non-traditional faculty, let's say, uh, industry practitioners building the content, learning designer, the platform and all of that. So we really recreated the whole uh, courage experience in a way that is more modern and more aligned to employers' needs and career needs. Uh, so we built all of this and in on degree programs, we have about 10,000 students. Um, on non-degree programs, um, like free courses or certificate programs, we train about three, 300,000 uh, students per month. Wow, so that's a lot of size, incredible placement, that 40 to 50,000 number. Uh, I'm curious, and you said an important thing that you're accredited, which really yeah. stands out, you know, apart from a lot of the players in this space. I'm curious from your perspective, looking back at when you started the business in 2007, what were the couple big insights in your mind that really allowed you to have the success that you've had and the scale that you've had and, you know, be able to offer degrees in this low cost way, but also all the way to these free programs of 300,000 learners now, what were those couple big insights in your mind that really unlocked this? At first, we created online courses, the courses we wish we had in school. Um, and Mike Hunter, Mathieu, has really, is really talented at building amazing courses, like his pedagogy, the way he writes, the way he like, takes you from A to Z, is very accessible, is, uh, you know, funny and it's like it's a really good call so that's what really drove flux of learners onto the platform it was for free um because it was not a business back in the day we started that really as a hobby and many students and colleagues and peers from all over the world started learning coding through open classrooms um in french-speaking countries mostly so we became the reference platform to learn coding and we had many students and through word of mouth, um, mostly. And at some point we realized um, many of them actually told us, you know what, I got, um, I graduated, I've got a bachelor's in computer science, but all I've learned was thanks to you guys uh, for your website. Like I, I learned nearly nothing through my school or my college or my university. I learned everything on a, your website. You know, it was fulfilling and, you know, clearly we had an impact. But at some point we realized that many, many of them actually told us, but you know what, um, I'm still a student at my college because I need a degree. I need it to find a job, to like signal the market that I have the skills I have. Um, and at first we didn't really realize this, but after a few years we thought, but if we do the heavy lifting, you know, uh, why can't we actually, you know, give a degree at the end? And this is when we started to try and become accredited in France. And at this time, uh, we became the very first fully online college. Uh, so the first accredited online college. 
and uh, we managed to get there and we started to award degrees and in a very non-traditional manner, if you will, because it's based on skills, on projects with one-to-one mentorship, is fully online. So it's a mix of synchronous and asynchronous uh, support, human-based, really high-touch group uh, and social learning as well. Um, and still leading to a degree at the associate bachelor's and master's level. It's just an incredible story. I mean, in many ways, you're one of the original boot camps, but online, and then yeah. you become <laughs> right, and then you you you've moved up market, if you will, into this accredited degree space, and you're then one of the few success stories, I think, worldwide of a new entrant in that university space that is often. Uh, designed to keep those new entrants out, but mm-hmm. you actually have changed that dynamic. And now, as I understand it, you're moving into a new phase from just being a course, and in some cases, this accredited degree provider, to actually integrating far more into the world of apprenticeships uh, themselves. Mm-hmm. Apprenticeships are becoming a hot topic. Tell us more about what your plans are and why you're moving in this direction. Yeah, no, definitely. So we we started apprenticeship programs in Europe uh, about five years ago. We became a pretty big uh, apprenticeship provider. Uh, we do apprenticeship on about 30 different jobs um, at the associate bachelor's and master's level. We do a lot of what we would call degree apprenticeships, so apprenticeship leading to degrees. And then um, 18 months ago, I relocated uh, personally to New York City uh, to really our game, small, by the way, our game. Exactly. <laughs> no, it's actually it's been an, an amazing journey. So I love it also from a personal standpoint. So it's been it's been great. But I did that because I uh, I was willing to invest more time in the states building um, accreditation, but also this new product that is uh, apprenticeship and trying to um, let's say monetize or bring a European style vision of what apprenticeship means because the apprenticeship is pretty you know major in in Europe but i would say in the states it's been it's been more like old fashioned in a way more focused on trade jobs on lower level of qualification not really on college degrees so more like blue collar jobs you can become an electrician a carpenter but it's pretty hard to have a master's degree in data science through apprenticeship which is something highly doable in Europe now um, and that drove really a huge growth in the number of apprentices um, in Europe. So this is what we're trying to do. So um, we started to become registered with the U.S. Department of Labor to offer registered apprenticeship programs that are 12 months long. So it's a walk and study program. That means that you have a work contract from day one of your apprenticeship uh, program. So you're employed by an organization, a public or private employer, you're gonna walk for four days away. So it's called on the job training, four days away. And then you're gonna be trained by open classrooms for one day a week, uh, trained online with one-on-one mentorship by a video conference. You have projects to complete courses and other um, apprentices and, and students you're gonna collaborate with. Um, and then for 50 weeks, for 12 months, you're gonna have a mentorship session every week. Uh, you will validate skills for projects, um, and then you'll get to uh, a certificate of completion by the USDOL. Um, it maps against college credits, so we do not have uh, our own accreditation in the states 
yet. Uh, I mentioned the accreditations in Europe. We're building that also in, in the States. So it's clearly our, our intent. But right now, what we do is um, we have college credit uh, transfer agreements with other universities, for example, with UMass. And UMass recognizes our uh, programs and basically grant college credits to our graduates. So the important thing here is that um, under an apprenticeship program, you have a work contract and you're paid while you learn. So that means that not only you don't have to pay uh, any tuition fees, no debt, nothing to pay or pay back ever, but you are actually receive wages uh, from day one of your program and those wages increase over time. And typically on our jobs, so mostly tech and digital jobs, um, would be your core focus. You're going to be paid between twenty to thirty dollars an hour, um, and you're going to probably end up being around forty to fifty dollars an hour. So really, quality jobs, and you're paid while learning. I mean, it makes a ton of sense, right? You're starting to deal with really uh, one of the reasons people often drop out of online degree programs or hesitate to go in the first place, which isn't actually the cost of the program, it's the opportunity cost of what am I foregoing in my life and how does it integrate with all these other demands and expectations, right? It, it's not just monetary, it's in terms of my time management and things of that nature. And so the apprenticeship you've designed tackles a lot of those. I'm curious, what's the demand look like from on the employer side? What are you finding in the market? Because as you said, this is a concept that's well understood in Europe. Outside of the trades in the United States, not historically the case. So how, what, what are you learning about demand? How are you educating the market? Very good question. So uh, clearly, uh, it's still a nascent market in the States. So uh, we need to educate uh, employers, organizations, and also people. Um, I think this change, this transition actually happened about five to 10 years ago in Europe. But you know, 20 years ago, it was the same thing. In Europe, it was apprenticeship was mostly for trade jobs and blue collar oh, that's workers. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, hmm. That changed over time, and um, you know, when I studied some time ago, I, I won't tell you how many years, but it's been some time actually. Uh, doesn't look this way, but it's been some time. <laughs> um, there was no apprenticeship uh, apprenticeship at my college, um, and I, I studied engineering and graduated masters, so kind of you know, some, somehow like. There are one, you know, colleges in, in France, no apprenticeship there. Now it's about 30% of their students under apprenticeship. Wow. So like nearly That's a, a sea change. Yes, it's a sea change. That means that you have a significant portion of um, an age group going through apprenticeship, even for, even for elite education, so-called like Ivy League type universities and colleges so that that's really a big challenge so we think that this momentum is building up in the states right now so uh why so first um there is a huge demand from employers in terms of um talent shortage okay we need more developers we need more data scientists we need more cybersecurity experts we need more of many different highly qualified jobs and um this shortage is just growing and growing. So that's one, it's the shortage. The second one is a diversity issue. Uh, we have massive diversity issues in those areas and, and jobs. So we need to obviously have less just 
white people walking on you know tech jobs but also you know asian and black and other non-white uh, minorities and um we need to shout that apprenticeship is really tapping into new talent pools um and will enable employers to build um talent pipelines that are more diverse and that will close uh, the skills gap. So it's a great solution basically to uh, tackle both the shortage and the diversity issue. Super interesting. Now, I'm curious, one of the big conversations we've seen in the United States is that people say, well, in Europe, they have this thing as an intermediary. So basically, employers don't want to take the risk of hiring these uh, individuals themselves. Uh, and so you need some sort of intermediary uh, to come along, take that risk on, do the, you know, the higher train deploy, as our friend Ryan Craig would call it. Uh, and then ideally, they transition into a full-time employee role at the employer. Are yeah. you seeing that need for that intermediary in the United States? Are you playing that role or who is playing that role for you if, if, if it's not you? Good questions. I, I think there are um, different components, actually, and not just the one you mentioned, but it is uh, clearly a relevant one. Um, usually you have the training provider, so really the teaching part of things, that's one. Uh, you have the matchmaking, which is really finding applicants and candidates, pre-screening them, finding employers, and trying to do this matchmaking process, which is kind of a recruitment uh, um, process, if you will. Um, yeah. And and somewhat also career coaching for candidates, because um, maybe they they they, they will never had you know experiences previously in tech. Talking to employers, you need to coach them a bit. That's the matchmaking. Then potentially you need also um, this hire and train model. So it's more of a staffing company type of model. You hire this apprentice, you train them at the same time, and you build an employer um, as a contractor, basically. Um, so those are different things. I think mostly um, you will find, you, you will always need the training component. You will always need the matchmaking. Um, the staffing component um, is not required all the time. Um, so sometimes you will need it, sometimes you will not. We do not do it. Uh, we partner, for example, with Europro, uh, so part of Europe, and Europro does that for us. So uh, we also collaborate with major um, staffing companies doing that for us. Um, but we do all of the rest. So we do the training, we do the matchmaking. We are technically also a sponsor and an intermediary um, reporting to the USDOL on behalf of the employer. So we do everything else but staffing because we think staffing is a very specific component and we partner on that front. And just to stay with it for one moment, then the matchmaking piece that you're doing in terms of helping people find the right employers or pathways or whatever it might be, yeah. that's the use case where you're working with an intermediary and you're trying to help place that individual into the right employee that might um, might be the right fit or does it take on a different dimension even? Yeah, actually, it's, uh, you have, depending on markets, you could have two types of apprenticeship, what we would call refer as student-led or employer-led. Because at the end of the day, you need an apprenticeship provider, an employer, and an apprentice. So it's a three-way contract. 
Um, mm. So you could start from the, from the employer side. It is typically the case in the States. Uh, but in other more mature apprenticeship markets, um, you can start from the student side. Uh, so student-led apprenticeship, meaning you have a candidate willing to do an apprenticeship in data science, and they're going to actually um, apply several employers to try and find an employer to find a job, basically. So it's a job. So they, they apply for a job as an apprentice, and they're going to find an apprenticeship contract. So um, they might come back to you and say, oh, actually, I found an apprenticeship contract in this small business uh, nearby that we, Open Classrooms, have never talked to. Um, and then you can walk with this employer and build a contract, sign it, and then um, deliver on it. So that's student-led. Employer-led is you start from the employer side, obviously. Usually, that would be a larger organization, kind of a Fortune 500 type, if you will. But not only, we, we can also collaborate, obviously, on um, smaller scales, just for one or two apprentices. And then this, this employer will say, OK, I need to hire a cybersecurity expert or a digital marketing specialist. And then we'll find candidates and pre-qualify those candidates for them. And then send them those profiles. They're going to interview them, select the one they like and then we'll sign the contract and deliver on it. Super interesting. Okay, last quick question about this apprenticeship side of how we unleash this marketplace, which is some people are the view that we really need policy changes to unleash this in the United States. And some people are the view, this is happening. Like the demand is clear enough. The supply imbalance is clear enough. Employers need to make this happen. What's your view as you've started mm. to come into this market in the United States? Do we need policy change? What are those policy changes, if so? Or is this a problem that is being worked out by employers, organizations like yours, and so forth, that you, you, you all got this in hand? <laughs> Good question. Um, I would say it is definitely challenging. And you know the core uh, trigger of this challenge is really the employer's demand. If you have employer's demand, it's going to change, right? So there is that. So it starts with employer's demand, and you need to explain and, and educate employers around apprenticeship. That's one. That being said, with proper public policy, you can accelerate the change. I do think that there is room to accelerate this change, as we've seen actually in Europe, where many markets uh, change policies um, in the UK with the apprenticeship levy, in France as well in 2018 and 2020, um, we've seen public policy changes. And just to cite uh, precise examples of what we've seen move the needle. So first of all, in the States, the, the funding and the support that employers get to pay for both the salary of the wages of apprentices and also what we would call the related training instruction, the RTI part of the training, training costs. Uh, this funding is grant-based or it's a tax credit, meaning that maybe you need to bid, first of all. Um, those are RFPs and grant programs. You need to bid, then maybe it's a yes, maybe it's a no, and maybe it's there, maybe next year it's not there, and it's local. It's, uh, you work with workforce development boards or maybe state agencies. So it's quite complex, to be honest, especially if you start operating at scale in different states. So it's hard to scale the way it's structured right now. Um, what we've seen working in Europe is 
you know, it was the same in France. It was regional uh, and grant-based. They switched it to a national funding scheme um, that is a formula-based uh, funding, meaning you hire an apprentice, you get paid that much. You hire two apprentices, you get paid twice much, et cetera, et cetera. So, and, and it's uncapped. Um, so that means the more apprentices you hire, uh, the more money you get, but it's very explicit and kind of automatic, if you will. So you know what to expect and it's there to stay. Uh, it's not a grant or RFP process. So that's one. And then they realigned also um, interest because they pay that uh, not only if you sign the contract, they pay 30% uh, upfront when you sign the contract and, and then they, they pay based on the apprentice progress, meaning they need to complete the program, right? Because otherwise, you know, you can pay upfront and then if they churn or if they don't, they don't complete for whatever reason, then frankly, it's not interest are not aligned. So you need to pay accordingly, align to the, pro the progress and, and pay until the very end of the apprenticeship um, contract. I think that's very important to align payment terms to student progress. Um, then they started tracking also student outcomes in the form of graduation rates, but also job placement rates, how, how many of them after completion will actually be employed full-time as a permanent employee in the company or in other companies. So that's very important to track student outcomes. Um, and then finally to uh, market this to uh, the general public, employers, uh, public policy makers and so on. And you've seen actually many governments running large scale advertising campaigns in favor of apprenticeship to showcase apprentices, both to employers and apprentices and families as well, uh, to move the needle. I think now saying that you can get, you know, a master's degree, a bachelor's degree from a very, you know, a top school uh, in a country. I mean, clearly that, that is a strong signal that apprenticeship is high quality, is really something that can be desirable. Um, so the marketing of it is also something where public policymakers can help. Incredibly helpful. I, I love uh, not only obviously does certainty breed more confidence from businesses to act, obviously, and getting a consistent funding formula that scales seems critical to that. But then also the other piece you said in terms of measuring progress and being focused on those outcomes, theoretically, actually, that could move us away from a seat time based system to competency based as students make progress in their learning okay. journey, which would be even better in terms of revolutionizing higher ed and our, our, our workforce education system. Last two questions as we start to wrap up here. You also have done a lot of work to get on the state uh, and local workforce board lists, I understand, so that you're able to start to move workforce federal money in this country, not just uh, federal financial aid, perhaps, or other mechanisms like that. Why is that important in, 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 this, in this evolving vision and how does it fit with the strategy? I think it's really, um, you know, uh, back to this public, public policy um, issue because uh, if you have employers willing to uh, hire, say, 100 apprentices next year, if you can find um, public support, public funding, um, so they can scale that program not to 100, but to 150, then clearly this is something we should explore. 
And again, we've seen that walk in other countries, especially in Europe, where our partnership is pretty big. Uh, so this public funding component, I think, will be key to really accelerate the market. Uh, it's getting there anyway, but you, you can get there faster. So we're starting to walk um, with state agencies and workforce development boards, so at county level, we are on the eligible training provider list in about 40 states, approximately, uh, with our apprenticeship program. So that means that we can apply for funding um, to help our partner employers to scale their apprenticeship program. So that's really the, the intent there. But again, uh, right now, the system is very scattered and um, different from one ball to the other, from one state to the other, uh, criteria and you know the, the different, the funding, the threshold, the um, criteria and so the requirements and so on are, are different. So obviously over time, um, public policy might change and might get better alignment to um, help us scale uh, better. But it is part of, part of the process. You need to start walking with a few balls in a few states. Some states also are maybe more um, forward-looking, more innovative, a bit more flexible in how they can allocate funding. And you see actually, for example, the state of California, um, which has doubled their uh, apprenticeship budget for 2023, roughly. And um, they're willing, they're thinking of moving into uh, this formula-based like paper apprentice um, vision. So it's interesting. Like you can, if you start having California doing it, then why not New York State? And then from there, you know, a, a bunch of major states might um, might chip in as well. So um, we're really at this tipping point. It's really interesting to witness, and that's why we open, you know, the conversation with state agencies and workforce boss to okay this is what we do those are the employers we work with from you know Mer to amazon and many others um is it something that you like to see more of in your state and how how can you help us uh, scale those operations yeah it's fascinating you're probably one of the few if only online providers at scale online providers that's worked with that many uh local workforce boards so uh, it's just it, it 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 and it's helpful to understand why and and I suspect those listening will will take a cue. But last question as we wrap up here: How do you see this future playing out for apprenticeships as it pertains to open classrooms, but also more broadly for the sector as a whole? Like we come back in five years from now on this broadcast, or we're walking the streets of New York City again, and we're talking about how the future has unfolded. What's your sort of sense for what this landscape is going to look like in five years from now in the United States? I think two things. Uh, one is the number of apprentices. You know, at the end of the day, um, if there is a sea challenge, you need to see the number of apprentices grow tremendously. Um, and right now we have about 400,000 apprentices in, in the States. Uh, which is very low to compare it, for example, to France. Right now, France has about 1 million apprentices in a country that's five times smaller. Um, so in the States, that, that would mean, you know, something like 5 million apprentices to compare it to. So I, I would like to come back to you and while we are wa walking in the streets of New York City, say now we have maybe like a million apprentices in the country. Um, and with a better 
uh, gender balance because right now um, apprentices in this country are mostly men, mostly white, um, and mostly in trade jobs, you know, like uh, truck drivers or carpenters and construction jobs. I would like to see more gender balance, more highly qualified jobs, for example, in, in tech, IT, cyber, uh, and other jobs, maybe in healthcare. Um, and, and I would like to see apprenticeship more connected to higher education, because obviously there is a huge issue around higher ed in, in the States around student debt and so on. And I think there is a way to solve both uh, the skills gap, the talent shortage, and this higher education um, issue that we have um, by creating degree apprenticeship and linking apprenticeship to college education um, in one way. Uh, maybe actually the way we're going to found apprenticeship will not be necessarily only through workforce development boards, but it could be uh, through something as systemic as Title IV in, in the future. So we could imagine that because um, apprenticeship works really well in terms of employability, in terms of completion rates. So um, it's a great outcome for the country. And if we think this way, maybe we should actually invest much, much more on apprenticeship uh, in a comparable fashion as um, how much we spend on higher ed right now through Title IV. Well, it is one of the few, I think, dare I say, bright spots or hopeful spots right now in the sector of education, broadly speaking, from K through 12, through higher education, through education upskilling uh, and lifelong learning. This is a, one of the few bright spots that starts to bring a lot of strands together. Pierre, keep up the great work. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. And thanks to all of you for joining us. We'll be back next time on the Future of Education.